of summer is done and all of this and this hiking talk, it reminds me, you know, when 2002, uh, my daughter Carissa was just turning one at her time. And when we went there, um, now this is, I think we went with my in-laws as well. And so you can imagine how exciting can it be, right? You're with grandparents and a one-year-old and you're in Mammoth in the summer. And I'm trying to figure out something to do. And this is pre-iPhone, Yelp, and all these things. And um, this is, you know, I, I found a restaurant to go eat at. I still remember this. And uh, we went to go eat at some random place. And I was trying to figure out what are we going to do here? And so I went outside, and there was a local person. She looked very local. She was always in this hiking gear, shoes, hat, and um, backpack. And she, she was like a serious hiker. She had the hiking sticks. I mean, that's, she was like the expert hiker. So I said, hey, uh, can I ask you something? She was, yeah. And her and her uh, friend were very helpful. I said, I want to just go on a little simple hike. Nothing too hard. We're just from the city. We're here visiting. We'd like to go on a simple hike. And I said, is there something you would recommend? And... Um, says, yeah, there's a little hike, beautiful waterfall. Just you go down, it's really easy. Now, this is already a mistake, right? Because she was a professional hiker. So what's easy for her is not going to be easy for a bunch of city slickers that show up, right? And so anyways, I said, oh, really? It's pretty easy. Goes, yeah. So I told my in-laws, I told my wife, you know, I said, oh, let's go for a hike. We're going to go see a waterfall. Wouldn't it be exciting for a one-year-old to go see a waterfall, you know? And so let's go. That was my bright idea. Now, uh, we didn't have sunblock, we didn't have sunglasses, we didn't have hats, we didn't have water. Uh, my in-laws were wearing like slip-on, like loafers. We didn't have a stroller. We didn't have, a, you know, the harness thing for a baby, nothing. And she was just at that stage where she wanted to walk, but she couldn't, so you have to hold her. Or if you let her down, you're you know, bound by her, you know. And so anyways, we're going now for this hike. In the beginning, the hike was nice because it was right after lunch. It was starting to warm up a bit. And uh, my father-in-law is making comments about the terrain and the trees, and we're, oh, wow, and talking. And it was a happy time, and we're walking. Uh, but after a while, this short hike that I thought, with my idea of what short was, uh, kept going and going, and there was no waterfall in sight. And we're starting to, the talking started to cease, right? And it started to get a little serious. And now at this point, uh, as we're getting closer, I think, to what the waterfall is, Carissa is knocked out sleeping, so I'm carrying dead weight, like a, you know, sack of potatoes, bag of rice, right? I'm carrying her, and my shirt has the sweat stain of her body outline on me, and we're walking down to go enjoy this waterfall. We finally make it to this waterfall. None of us are enjoying the waterfall. By this time, we're looking, and we didn't realize, but the whole hike to come to the bottom of the waterfall was all downhill, and now we're looking back. We have to go back up. This child is sleeping. My in-laws are saying, oh, and should have married someone else, you know, whatever it is. And we're, we're just having these moments, and we didn't have any water. The only water we had was in uh, Carissa's green and pink little sippy cup. And uh, after a while, we were saving it for her, but I said, you know, uh, she's not going to make it if I die. I drank it, and, um, and we go back. I said, we got to go back. I said, don't worry, I'll carry her, right? I'll carry this one-year-old, my daughter, and we're going, and we're going. And we're going, and after a while, I said, I said, hey, Grandpa, you know, don't you love your granddaughter? Can you carry her? She's carrying, you know, he's carrying her. And we make it back, get back to the restaurant. And like, give me, you know, five Sprites, five Cokes. Give me whatever you have. And we're drinking. And, um, and the joke, the next day, I said, hey, should we go for a hike? And I got this kind of, you know, um, treatment, as you would imagine. But it could have been very enjoyable, right? 
It could have been so enjoyable if we had a hat, if we had some water, if we had the right shoes. Um, if we were equipped, uh, it would have been a great hike. It was a beautiful waterfall. It, the, the trees and the air was great. It would have been a wonderful time. But not equipped, it becomes something you just barely survive. And I bring this up because this is Second uh, Samuel 23. We're at the end of David's life. And here in this beautiful passage, I, I, I want to draw out four practices that helped him to not just survive, but thrive. Now, all of you here, for us, some of us are just surviving life. You just can't wait till it's Friday or the weekend. Wait till, you know, it's 5 p.m., 6 p.m., and you're just barely getting by. It seems like it's nonstop. The kids need this, and they need this, and my work demands this. And it's just barely getting by, and we just have, barely have our heads you know, above water, just treading. But that there are people in the same circumstances, in the same stage of life, they're thriving. They're saying, this is great. And they're doing so well. And we want you, and we want you as Christians to do well. You have a hope. You have God who is with you, who empowers you through Christ. Why can't we thrive in all that we do? And so we want to look at these four practices that uh, I drew out from this passage, right? And the first one is singing. Singing, right? Uh, singing is something we take for so granted. Singing, we think, is for kids to do. Singing, we think, is something that the professionals should do and I'm not that good at. Right? Most of us, uh, we would say, are, you know, the top greatest fears of people is public speaking and public singing, right? Probably public singing might be even the worst. And yet... David's title is mentioned in verse 1 of our text. And you look there, it says, Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David. He's the son of Jesse, oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel is the title he has. The sweet psalmist. The one who wrote the Psalms, Seventy. Uh, three chapters of the 150. The one who wrote almost half. He's the psalmist. The psalms are the books of songs. People would sing this. They would sing it in great uh, you know, victories and defeats and hardships. They would sing this together. They would sing it alone. And he was the great psalmist, not just of his generation, but for all of us. He's a sweet psalmist, it says. You know, that word sweet can be translated delightful, pleasant. The same word is used in the Song of Songs when the beloved or the woman says of her uh, lover that he is truly delightful. And David is described. So he's a singer. It's interesting, the Bible contains over 400 references of singing. We as a people of God are called to be people who sing. Sometimes we take that out. We're not good at it, so I don't do it. But it's now people who sing. Um, Fifty commands are given to sing in the Old and New Testament. So the Bible talks about singing. God is described as one who sings uh, the story of Paul, uh, Paul and Silas when they're imprisoned in Acts 16. And they're imprisoned for doing God's work. And when they are in prison, what do they do? They pray and they sing. They sing hymns. There's a, an effect. I'm sure it encouraged them. It helped them. Maybe they were afraid. 
they were discouraged and maybe they were singing together. Help pass the time. All those things. But even more than that, God was in their midst. Right after this happens, there was a great earthquake. Foundations of the prison was shaken. The doors were open. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. Somehow, in the midst of singing, God entered into their presence. Bob Coughlin writes about music, particularly worship music. Music is a language of emotion in every culture of every age. It is capable of affecting us in profound and subtle ways. There was an article in Time magazine titled, Singing Changes Your Brain. Right? I think it does even more than that. Hormones are released. Uh, stress goes down. Pleasure goes up. One particular study even said that when a group gets together, like in a choir, like at church, and we sing together, they say the heart rates now are in sync. God sings over us. The angels sing to God. We sing with them. And there's this, I think there's, we, our heart is now connected in our songs. And so we are called to sing. You know, this, uh, just a few weeks ago, about a month ago, we went to a conference. I think our staff went to a conference in Nashville called Because of the lineup of speakers were so great. And the musicians were wonderful. Um, and they had all these original songs they were going to teach to us and the presentation of it. And one night we're at this place and 10,000 plus people are there. Uh, John Piper is going to come out and preach, and, uh, but they were going to lead the songs. And they kept saying, oh, you know, we want to sing for you a song. And it became a concert after a while. You know, I wrote this in, you know, their Irish heritage. So they kept talking about, I wrote this in Ireland. I went back home. It was so beautiful in Ireland. And uh, I'm like, okay, you know, we're listening. But at one, of, at one segment, they had Johnny Erickson Tata come out. Maybe a lot of you uh, know who she is. Christian speaker, motivational speaker. She was paralyzed as a teenager uh, from a diving accident from the neck down. She's probably in her, I don't know, 50s, 60s by now, maybe more. And she came out uh, on her wheelchair. They guided her out right to the middle. And just, you could feel all 10, 12,000 people, just kind of the focus was on her. It just got really quiet. And she talked briefly. And then she said, I want us to sing. We're going to sing a hymn together. And there were no instruments, no nothing. And she led us in a hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Granted, these people are like the worship people at church, so their singing is great. But it was worth us, worth me flying out there to be in that arena with 12,000 people singing. We couldn't hear her. We didn't go because her voice was so great or strong, and she could barely hit the notes in her frailty. But us singing together, filling that stadium was one of the highlights. And so we're called to sing. So when you come to church, be ready to sing. No one here cares if you sing well or not. Um, and so come here, be ready to sing. Warm up your voice. Go to Chris, say, what are we going to sing this week? Give me the links. I want to practice. I want to learn. Be people who sing. Don't keep it in here. Let it come out. It benefits others when you sing together. Secondly, as we, the second practice we see of David is he lived by the word. We have to be men and women who live by the word. Today, in our day and age, we have everyone saying, oh, I have to find my moral compass within me. I have to find my direction within me. I have to find and live out my passion. But our passion and our compass, our moral compass, often lead us astray. We're not wise enough, smart enough. We need to rely on something else. Live by the word. Look at verse 2 
and three of our texts, he's through him. He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So he's saying, these words I'm saying, it's by God. It's his words. Verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken. The God of Israel has said to me. God is speaking. Do we listen? God is speaking. He's speaking to me. means we have to take it in. We have to listen. It's interesting, right? It says his word is on my tongue as he speaks now the words of God as he writes them down. We often think of a, a sermon as uh, the, the, the proclamation of God's word. And in our day and age today, we often put in spotlight those who are just gifted. Right? They make us laugh. They make us cry. It's better than a TED Talk. It's so good. It's so relatable. It's short. I mean, man, it's so good. The voice is good. Whatever it is, we might say, that makes a good sermon. But we have it all wrong if it becomes now someone's original message. Someone's own craftiness or giftedness that now comes through the pulpit. It has to be the word of God. So it's not like I'm bringing an original idea. I'm bound by the book. The ideas are in the book. And somehow I have to relay the book. And so we say, boy, that was good because I, we learned about the Bible. The ideas were from the Bible. And he speaks to us. We have friends and relationships that over time grow apart, don't they? You know, we've seen it in our families, in our extended families, where even siblings, they kind of don't talk anymore. And cousins, they used to play, but not anymore. Why? Because communication has now become so infrequent. I don't see them anymore. I used to see them, uh, you know, all the time. And we say, I, I, I don't talk to them anymore. To the point we say, well, I don't really care about them anymore. If this is God's voice speaking to us as David is talking, that he has spoken and he's talking to me and I'm not listening or reading or taking this in, we grow apart. And so we are now looking at this word. There's a, I love the story that's told uh, by the general secretary of the Bible Society in Zimbabwe, Mr. Kambarami. Kambarami, right? He's... Uh, he was working to get the Bible into Zimbabwe, and he tells a story that he, of he met a young man um, who was, uh, didn't know the Lord, and so he said, I, you know, I want to give you a Bible, and the guy was very belligerent to him. You know, I don't want the Bible. I don't care for the Bible. I don't need the Bible. Right? So he said, I want you to take the Bible as a gift, and he gives him this Bible, and the guy says this to him, you give me that Bible, I'm going to tear the pages out of the Bible, and I'm going to wrap tobacco, I'm going to make a cigarette out of all the pages of the Bible. I'll smoke the Bible. So he says, okay, do me a favor. I'll give you the Bible. You can smoke all of it. But just read it and then smoke it. Right? <laughs> and the guy says, okay, I, okay, fine. I'll read it and I'll smoke it. Like, leave me alone. And he takes the Bible. Fifteen years later, uh, the same person, Mr. Kambarami, is at a conference for pastors and evangelists and so forth. And this young man comes up to him and says, remember? He says, I remember I met you 15 years ago. And it was the guy he had given the Bible to. And he had now become an evangelist. He would preach on the street corners in Zimbabwe. And he'd come to this conference to learn. And he says, I, you changed my life. The Bible changed my life. And he says, told him in a humorous but in a real way. He says, you know, I smoked through Matthew and I smoked through Mark. And I smoked all of Luke. And then by the time I got to John, my life was changed. 
right? He became an evangelist. It changes us. Isaiah 55, 3. God tells the people, of uh, his people, incline your ear, come to me, hear, that your soul may live. Many of us, you know, with our educational backgrounds, we might think, come and hear so I learn something new. I, I learn some trivia. I learn some, something novel or it gives me instruction. But no, it's more than that. So that your soul will live. You can be surrounded by all the nice things on the externals, but our souls could be dying and withering away. And there are plenty of people all around us, at work, at home, at school, you know, our neighbors and so on. On the outside, they look wonderful, but their souls are dying. He says, come, listen, incline your ear, listen, so that your soul may live. We are spiritual creatures. So our soul has to live. You know, David written Psalm 119, the longest of the Psalms. It's all about God's word. Every verse is about the precepts of God, the statutes of God, and so on and so forth. He uses different words to describe what God's word does. Psalm 119, verse 45, I love what it says. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will walk, I shall walk in a wide place. Something wide, expansive, big. Right? If you're a golfer, you want to hit on a wide fairway because your ball will not get lost, right? You don't want to play where it's narrow and there's trees and bunkers and water. You say, I don't know, I'm so nervous. It's wide. You're not going to lose it. He says this. The King James uh, translates that, I will walk at liberty. This is the freedom that it's talking about here. If we are connected to God's word, we're walking, we're living life, we're doing life. And there's a sense of freedom. There's a sense of liberty. There's a sense that life feels just wide and open and it's comfortable. Though the circumstances might not have changed, we're connected in this way. And the third practice, and there's two more, right? Just stay with me. The third practice is he acts justly. He leads justly. Uh, it says in verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. And it uses this poetic language to describe what the effect of that is. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What, what he's saying is, if he leads well, he is like, talking about David, he says, and us, if you lead well, and you act just towards those who are pow less power than you, you are like the sun in the morning. It lets the new grass sprout. The sun allows that, right? Uh, Bergen writes in his commentary about that verse, a righteous king is like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. For well-watered seedlings to fulfill their potential, they must have bright sunlight. Similarly, strong, righteous leaders help create an environment in which the people under their care can fulfill their potential. The third practice that helped him to thrive is he always looked for ways to help people thrive. 
to encourage someone. Um, encouraging someone is not a personality trait. We often think it is. We think, oh, she's so kind. Oh, he's just a big extrovert. He, he talks to everyone. No, it, it's not a personality trait. Say, I appreciate this about you. I love to see you grow in this way. I love to see you, you know, do this. I love seeing that you made it out to retreat or you came out to this. Man, I love seeing your family at church today. Um, words that are intentional to help someone. And he says here that he rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, that we ought to treat everyone. And now this becomes now not just about me, right? The word is about me. Singing is about my soul. But now it becomes about the people around me. I will act justly. I will always choose to act justly. I will always choose to be generous. I will always choose to help someone whenever I can. And it says, it will cause them to grow. You have the opportunity to become someone's morning light. Sometimes we're so afraid. I don't know why. I get like this. We get so afraid to compliment someone. I'm not, I'm not just talking about mere flattery, which so, so many people do so well. But to encourage someone. But we're called to do this. To lead in such a way that the people that's below us will do well. Those of you in, uh, in jobs where you have a team under you, a group of people under you, your job as God's people is to lead them so they do their job so well. They're not there to make your job so good. Your job is to now, how can I help you to do your job so well? And the last thing is, uh, he, and the fourth practice, I think, is he preaches the gospel to himself regularly. He reminds himself of this gospel truth. Um, it's interesting, you know, in verse 5, he asks these two rhetorical questions. And in these two rhetorical questions, he's asking himself, he's questioning himself. And he says, for does not my house stand so with God? And this question, he's saying, isn't God with you? Steve, isn't God here with you? What are you worrying about? What are you staying up all late and worrying about? Isn't God with you? Isn't he with, you, with your house or your family? And of course the answer is yes. And so he asks himself this rhetorical question. This is part of the gospel. God is for me. And his covenant is everlasting. My place in his home, in the Father's house, is secure. All these truths we tell ourselves over and over and over. And then the second rhetorical question in verse 5, For will not he cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? Isn't he going to help you? Isn't he there to take care of you? He's the loving Father that's going to give you what you need. And the description there of this covenant he says in that verse, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant. It's everlasting, and I love, ordered in all things and secure. So God's relationship with you is not conditional. Now God's relationship with you is not, how, how did you perform today for me? Did you come to church and check this off today? Right? Did you do good enough? God is saying it's eternal, it's secure, the word secure there. The original language, shamar, it means to guard something as a watchman. So God's covenant with us is guarded by him as a watchman of the night, of the city, on the wall. 
and we are in the walls. We are in his house, and he guards us. And he says, nothing can take you away. Nothing can harm you, and I am here with you. David, at the end of his life, I'm sure he's asked these questions to himself over and over, and maybe we have to do this as well. He's going to cause me to prosper. He's going to be standing with me. He still is. I'm going through a hard time now, but this is he is now helping me to grow. I haven't been so good, or I haven't been now performing my quote-unquote religious duties. It's okay. It's his covenant. It's what Christ did for me. It's already done. He's guarding it. I'm okay. And I close with this verse from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.31. What then, he asked two same rhetorical questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And maybe we have to preach that to ourselves regularly. When you don't feel it, when you feel just inadequate as a parent, at your job, things aren't as going as well. For some reason, your spirit is uneasy. You have to pause and remind yourself, if God is for me, who can be against me? And I want us to say that, preach that to ourselves regularly. And so with that thought, let me invite you to bow your heads with me uh, and let's pray. God, if you're for us, who can be against us? Are you not standing with our house? Are you not, Lord, causing us to prosper in all of our, even in our health and need. You're there with us. So God, we take that to heart today. We do not want to just barely get by in this life. We want to thrive. We want to, Lord, make this the best years of our life. And it happens as we are connected to you. So we sing to you. God, we hear your words. God, we treat people justly. And lastly, God, we remember what you did for us on the cross. We preach the gospel to ourselves. So these practices, Lord, give us faith and discipline to do these things regularly to live for you. Our lives are given by you for us to thrive in. So we want to do that. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of offering and some time of reflection. We'll have a time of corporate prayer. So uh, would you take a moment, prepare offering, say a prayer as you give, um, and uh, let's continue our worship.